All right, so we're continuing on with Galatians. By the way, there are books in the back, so if you weren't here before, we did, we did get more copies of the books. I checked, I think there's 12, so they're in a box right at the back. So feel free to get some if you need one. And so I'm going to do the review. As I do the review, if there's something pops in your head you want to talk about, or if you want to make comments on something from last class, let me know. So last time we talked about the Holy Spirit versus the law. And what Paul points out is that the Galatians had evidence of the Holy Spirit. And so why would they go try to go back to the law? It was pretty obvious that the law was not necessary. The Holy Spirit came to them without the law. And he's basically saying, like, you need nothing else, right? You have all the evidence you need. And he points out that there, there were miracles that had happened. And then he points out that they had undergone persecutions, which now, later he's going to point out that really they're trying to avoid persecution by going back to the law. And it's like, did you, did you do this for nothing? I mean, you guys paid a price for this, and now you seem to be trying to avoid it. And he points out kind of an irony. You started with the Spirit. Why would you end with works? Okay? You started with God, and then you're going to try to end it by your own actions. And somebody pointed out in class, I think it's a good point, that sometimes us, as Christians kind of fall in this trap too. We know that when we come to Christ and we're baptized, there's nothing in my hand I bring, only to the cross I cling. And then later we start thinking, well, you know, I've got to live this new life, and so maybe I have to kind of earn it. Well, you didn't, you didn't earn it on day one, right? So you don't have to earn it after the fact either. And we also talked about how Christians are judged. And I think probably the best way to summarize this is that Christians are judged, somebody in the class put it, we are judged relative to Christ. And so the, the question is, do we show faithfulness to, to Jesus, right? Do, are we acting like he is our king? And... And if, you, if that is how you are, then you, it should, there should be evidence of that, that that's the case. I, I thought about, too, that I think this is probably something that would be worth, maybe even like a sermon, going through all the verses that talk about how Christians would be judged. When I thought about it, there's, just looking at them briefly, or thinking about them briefly, there's several different categories. Like, there's categories of passages that talk about Christians being judged, but if you're in the context, like in First Peter, he means you're being judged now. Right? He's not talking about the end judgment. He's like saying, look at your life. You guys are putting up with persecution. You know how this is going to end. Right? Your, judge, your judgment in a certain is happening right now. And there are other ones that do refer to a future judgment. And then there's this whole series of passages that I just don't think are really relevant to this question. For example, Matthew 12 talks about how every idle word will be judged. And that sounds terrible. Like, so God's going to go through every single word. And, he's gonna, and it sounds like two things. One, it's every little statement is going to be sitting there being judged on it. And, Okay, that doesn't sound great. And then two is that it sounds like you're not really being judged on your heart. Read it in context. Okay, Jesus actually is referring to some, an event that was happening with a discussion with him and the Pharisees in which they said, oh yeah, you do works, you do these miracles by the power of Beelzebul. Okay, that, that's what we would probably not call, that's not just one little thing, that's pretty big. And Jesus criticized him. He's like, yeah, you guys have clearly not thought this through. That's why I think he means by idle word. You just kind of made this up. You ever had talked to somebody and you're, you're talking to them about some topic and it's clear that they're making up arguments as you go. They haven't really thought it through. It doesn't usually go well. Right? And this is what happened. He's like, okay, you guys have clearly not thought this through. And then Jesus specifically makes the point. It is actually about your heart. Because he talks about how a good, a good tree produces good fruit. Right? And a bad tree produces bad fruit. So the the words that he's hearing him say, that's not the main problem. It's the problem. There's something deeper there. So when you read it in context, I don't think that that is really relevant to the question of how Christians will be judged unless you're saying Jesus is doing things by the power of Satan and then you're not really, you shouldn't be a Christian. Okay? That's, that'd be a pretty big deal. So there's a whole set of passages I don't think 
work in as well as you might think. If you just take the one verse, you've got to read it in context. All right. Anything on that? Questions, comments? All right. If not, then let's go ahead and do the prayer. God and Father in heaven, we're really thankful for this time that you have blessed us with, this time that we can come together with fellow Christians to study your word and worship you. We ask your blessings upon the teachers this evening, that you would help them to impart accurately and clearly your word to the students and to be with each of us as students, that we might diligently search the scriptures together. And take those things that we learn and use them in our lives and share them with others as well. Father, we're mindful of many that we each know that are sick and in need of healing. We ask that your healing hand be upon each one. That be your will. Father, even more especially, we know of those who are spiritually sick who have turned away from you. And we pray that they might soon recognize their need to humble themselves before you and become obedient. Pray that they might do so. Father, continue to be with us and give us a good night's sleep at the end of the day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In Genesis chapter 15, that account says that Abraham was covered with a great darkness. Now that Hebrew phrase is, means fear. You can see it in the Psalms. It talks about in Psalms. And apparently, I heard somebody was saying that even in modern Hebrew, that it still uses a phrase which means fear. So he's covered with fear. And the reason was, is it's pretty easy to see once you see the picture around it. In front of him are all these animals. They've been cut, and they're left sitting in this wilderness. Blood is pooling. Birds are coming down and pecking at the, at the flesh. And so this is a picture of death. What had happened was that God had told Abraham that he was going to have, he was going to give him a seed, right? He was going to make him a great nation. He's going to have, he's going to have children. And it hadn't happened yet. And so he goes to God. He's like, okay, am I, am I supposed to do something here? Eleazar is going to be the one who inherits. And is that supposed to be, you know, am I supposed to do something here? And God says, no, okay, it's going to come. It's going to come from your own body. Your child is going to come from you. And so he asks, I'm paraphrasing here, but something like, well, how do I know this is going to happen? God says, go get these five different animals. Now, the, the text doesn't say that God gave him any instruction beyond that. It's possible that he did. But it seems like the evidence is that this was an ancient ceremony that, was, that used to happen where called a cutting of a covenant. And the Hebrews actually says cutting of, super literally, it would be a cutting of a covenant. And that fits because that's maybe why God didn't have to describe what, was, what he had to do. So he says, God says, get these five animals. And Abraham takes them, cuts them, doesn't cut the birds, but he cuts the other ones, and leaves them out. The picture appears to be that when you would make a covenant, this was, a, this was a symbolic. Like, you will keep your covenant or you will pay with blood. You can imagine just walking between those animals, being like, if I don't keep this, that's going to be me. Okay, so you, you understood you were going to keep this covenant. Generally, the greater party would go first. So if it's a large kingdom talking to a smaller kingdom, like a vassal treaty, the, big, the king representing the larger kingdom would go through first. And so Abraham, you can, now you can think about what he's about to do. He's about to make a covenant, which he's saying, I will pay with my blood if I don't keep my side of it. He wakes up, and it's, uh, the text says that a smoking fire pot goes between the animals. 
Now that makes sense. That would fit. God is often referred to, it's associated with smoke. And God is clearly the greater party. And so God goes between the animals, symbolizing that he's saying, I will keep my side of the covenant or I will pay with blood. Now it's time for Abraham to go through. But curiously, he never does. And the text says, then a torch, flaming fire, passes between the animals. Now God is often represented by flame, with fire. Okay, there's many, many passages of that. And if you think about this passage, what it's saying is that if God's saying, if I don't keep my side of the covenant, I will pay with blood. And if you, Abraham, don't keep your side of the covenant, I will pay with blood. And in that chapter, it says that Abraham's faithfulness was accounted to as righteousness. Now, that's quoted in Galatians. What Paul does is when he quotes a passage, he's not just quoting the passage, he's quoting the context. And when you read that whole context, it's not hard to see there's more than a little of the gospel story embedded way back there in Genesis 15. In fact, it's this, Galatians 3 says that the gospel was preached to Abraham. The gospel was preached to Abraham. Like what we think of gospel, we think of Jesus and all the other stuff. But this is saying all the way going back to Abraham, Abraham knew something about the gospel. And I think this is the sort of thing that tells you what's going on there. And a key part of this is that it is what happens with Abraham is very similar to what happens in the gospel, about how we're both accounted to, our faithfulness is accounted, or righteousness is accounted based on our faithfulness. And the story is similar to the Gospels in that it's not about what Abraham can do for God. It's focused on what God's going to do for Abraham. Remember that question, who's going to be my heir? That's what Abraham's asking. Do I have to do something? You remember, he actually does try to do something to make that heir. And it ends in disaster, right? But God's, so this is often what happens when people try to take the mission into their own hands. All right, any questions or comments on that before we get into Galatians? All right, so let's go ahead and read Galatians 3, but this is referred to. And we're going to read verses 6 through 10. Galatians chapter 3, 6 through 10. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness, so then understand that those who believe are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by, by faith, proclaimed the gospel to Abraham ahead of time, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who believe are blessed along with Abraham the believer. For all who rely on doing the works of the law are under a curse, because it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not keep on doing everything written in the book of the law. All right, what kind of things did you guys notice with that? Or questions did you have? Be sure you do the right one. 
just in the wording, is that just seems a little odd. In verse 7? Yeah, therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Is he saying, therefore you can be sure? Or is it a question? Or is it a, uh, I mean, a option? I guess it depends on what you mean by option. Do you mean option in the sense that he's saying that, I mean, it turns out I guess it is an option because he's saying, look, you got, there's two options here. There's the works of law, which he, he talks about it in verse 10. And then there's the other one, which is more like the prototype that was set through all the way back to Abraham. Because he does actually set these as two contrasts as, as he goes on. It's just confusing wording. It, it almost appears to me it's a statement. Therefore, you can be sure it is those who are faith or children of Abraham. Okay, I see. Yeah, and that is how... That is how the NET kind of... How did your translation? Therefore, be sure that it is those who are faith who are sons of Abraham. As if, okay. As if you need to be sure. Okay, good point. So it's almost like he's saying... Is he saying, A, understand that this is the case? Or is he saying... B, you need to have that surety in your own heart about that this is the case. Okay. I see a couple hands with David. The uh, New James renders that verse, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of David. So that sounds like a statement that it's only those who are of faith that can be called sons of David. Yeah, a good point. And that's how I've always read it. I hadn't... I hadn't could even consider the fact that it was more like a possibly a question. Did I see another hand raised? Bob, did I see your hand raised? Okay. And that's what mine says, which would which is I think why the question had popped in my head because that's it seems to be the, the general <laughs> translation of it. Yeah, I'm trying to look I'm gonna look this up because I'm curious what it says. Just what the word for understand is in the Greek. I'm guessing it's no scope, but I'm not positive. Yeah, I mean, it's like... Yeah, it's a word no, so I'm not sure why... Yeah, I, I would say, to me, it seems like understand would avoid that confusion. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, and that... And I think that's probably what they were thinking they meant when they said make sure, like make sure that you understand. <laughs> but it's, I, I had never thought about that. You know, it's funny about this. If you go into, if you read a lot of things on translation, you realize how hard translation actually is. And you can judge me whether you think this is dumb or smart. It's probably, I think, probably more dumb. But I, I learned Greek in part because I wanted to know, I would kind of get below the surface of how translation's done. And I remember after doing all this study, I was like, huh, turns out, English translations are pretty solid. You pretty much can get hit, everything you can get out of it. I mean, it's not totally true. And there's some side topic, technical things where, yeah, you can get something out of learning the Greek. But if you can read it in English in context, yeah, you're good. Uh, did I see a hand raise, Brad? Yeah, that's a good way to put it, which I think is what they meant. You can be sure that, like, yeah, it makes sense. And I think that's exactly his point, because he's saying, look, this is not, this new justification by faith idea, it's not new. 
In fact, it's the oldest run, right? It's older than the Torah, actually. Uh, yes, ma'am. Right. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And this is the contrast he's setting up. You don't have, in fact, I mean, as I said before, he doesn't, he's, Paul's like saying there is no option to go back to the old law. You go back to the old law, it just proves you're a sinner. That's what its job was. So, I mean, you're stuck. Yes, sir. 1901, American Standard, it says it means you perceive. You perceive. Okay. You perceive that. Okay. And then you said that was the ASV, the actual 1901. Wow, you're very particular. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it, yeah, exactly. That's a good way to put it. When you read it in context, it's pretty clear. He's like saying, it goes all the way back to Abraham. You're going to be, you're going to be blessed like he was blessed, right? And, and this is Abraham. This isn't just some side character. This is somebody who is crucially important. Yes, sir. Yes, and this is going to wind up being a really key point. Okay, the, he goes back to somebody pre-law to make a point about the law. Like all the way back, we're going all the way back to the beginning. This is not a new idea. And he's going to, later we're going to, to he's going to talk about how, well, why did God make this whole, this whole law thing? Okay, because you're going to be stuck with this question. If he started with faith and it ends with faith, why have law in the middle? It does seem a little bit odd. You can understand why somebody would be asking that question. Yes. One, one thing that seemed interesting I had never noticed before is in verse 8, the scripture foresaw. Um, and it almost personifies the scripture as a being, almost like the word. And that's not foreign, but just interesting that he says the scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles. Um, huh. So by faith, uh, and then preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. So this gospel is all men, right? And the scriptures foresaw that. It's interesting. Never noticed how that's worded. Yeah, I hadn't either. Yeah, I like that. It's almost like the scriptures, the way you put it, personified, right? Scripture saw that this was. And that's, that's actually a good point in another sense, too, because okay, if you talk about, if you've, if you've ever read the, the Quran, I mean, it is hard to read. If you want to have an appreciation for the Gospels, go try to read the Quran. Okay, it's ordered by chapter lines. So it's not like a chronological word, or a chronological book with narratives and stories. Right? It's very strange. And one of the things they have in Islam, and I would argue this is very different than the way the Bible understands this, but, well, there's many things that are very different. But they have this idea of abrogation, which is that if you have a later command that conflicts with the earlier one, you always go for the later one. 
the problem I have with this is that this makes it sound like that if you were to place the Bible, that people are just kind of making stuff up and it's like, oh, I don't know, you just go with the later one, okay? But that is very different than the way the actual, if you go back all the way to Abraham, to, through the law, to the new law, you find that it always made sense. Like when it goes back, it wasn't like, well, we got that wrong, I don't know what to do here, I guess we'll just make up something new and try that. It was, it was like you said, the scripture foresaw. This was the plan and it was from the beginning, and which is why it fits so tightly and nicely together, which is very different than Islam. Anything else? I thought I saw another hand raised. Yes, sir. Yeah, well, I know. I think you're actually right. So first of all, yeah, it's not the law that was the problem. It was not keeping the law that was the problem, which is why he says in here, listen, if you're going you're gonna to do the law, you've got to do the law. This is the problem. And how many thousands of years of failure of people not keeping the law makes you think, okay, maybe, maybe this isn't going to work, right? If the whole plan is to wait for the Jews to get it all, all right, we'll be waiting a long time. That's a problem. Also, the second point you made about how you, when you go back and you read the curses and the blessings, they sound very agricultural. I mean, I agree. The whole idea of the land was a gift to them, which is, really makes sense because really what is sin from, in many respects is us abusing what God had given us. He made this beautiful creation and we messed it up. It really goes all the way back to the garden, which is also an uh, agricultural reference as well. The Garden of Eden, I mean. And I do think the whole curses of the law, I think that is exactly what he's, he's got in the back of his head. Uh, Chris. Is, the, is verse 8 a summary of the term gospel in, in that last phrase? Is that all nations shall be blessed? Is that the gospel? Okay. It's almost saying, you know, the yeah. way it's worded, it looks like that's a, def, that's a concise uh, form of saying the gospel. Yeah, what do you think about that? When it says in verse 8, is that a good summary of the gospel? All the nations will be blessed in you. I think it fits with Christ being the king, and that's this is the outcome. So it's kind of the same message. Yeah. There's a greater kingdom over all kingdoms. Yeah, the kingdom over all the kingdoms. And a king over all the kings, right. Also, it says all the nations, which is a key part throughout Galatians is that there's a kind of an, I don't even know if you want to call it racial or nationalistic edge to this, which is do Gentiles get to be saved? Because when you go accept circumcision, you're basically becoming a Jew. And that's, that's true to this day, actually. Yeah, that, that's, a good, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. Verse 8 really is a pretty good summary of the gospel. Uh, David, you had your hand raised. Yeah, uh, verse 6, you know, which is a quote from uh, Genesis 15, we find that quote elsewhere in the New Testament. We do. Uh, 
Romans 4, uh, and also James 2. And I thought James 2 was pretty interesting. Uh, look over there, uh, verses 21 through 23. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. This refers to a time not Genesis 15, but later on in Abraham's life, after Isaac has been born and is not sure how old, but you know, maybe early teens. And, but it talks about the same thing. Abraham believed God. He was counted in his righteousness. So that's not a one-time thing, but a matter of life for Abraham. And I think that's really important for us. And I think that's certainly one of the messages we should get from this statement and looking at Abraham. Yeah, I 100% agree. Because, as James is pointing out, if Abraham's faithfulness, his faith, is the prototype for our faith, then you have to ask the question, well, what kind of faith did Abraham have? And here's what he did not have. He did not have, oh, yeah, God's going to do something, so I'll just, I guess I'll just wait, and, you know, I don't know. I'll, I'll, he tells me to go places, I'll just, I'll just wait for him to do whatever he wants. You know, that's not what happened. It was somebody who acted like he was in a relationship with God and took the stuff seriously, willing to make a sacrifice in order to make that happen. So this tells you about the nature of faith, right? This is, it's not just about faith and works. It's like, if somebody doesn't have works, I think what James is saying is you don't have faith. That's not the same thing. Right? That's not the kind of faith that Abraham had. Uh, Bob, did I see your hand raised? Yeah, Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Hebrews points out the type of faith we're talking about, which is an active, a living faith. That's a real faith. Yeah, it's like, I think it was Martin Luther who said, trying to separate works from faith is like trying to say light and heat from fire. Right? If you try to parse that, it's, it's not going to work. At least when you got it defined correctly. You know, it's difficult about this, too, is that the way that the world uses the word faith, you ever see it on TV? It's like, it's, it's a very different definition. What's also weird is if you go back and you read about how the word faith is used in other ancient Jewish documents, like Josephus, for example, used for things like treaties, like a faith, right? I mean, would literally be what it is. At one point, Josephus finds himself, there's a guy named Jesus, not that, not Jesus, Jesus, but it's a brigand leader who tried to kill Josephus. And Josephus finds him and wants to show him mercy. And he says, I'm not going to count it against you. So he's, he could actually kill this guy. He's actually this this brigand leader is stuck in a position where Josephus could just take him out right then. He said, I'm not going to do that. If you repent and believe in me, the Greek words are the same as Mark 1.15, when it's talking about repenting and believing in the gospel. Well, what did Josephus mean there? He didn't just mean, oh, accept this fact. He meant something else. He meant giving loyalty. It's like, you show loyalty to me, I'm going to overlook the fact that you tried to kill me, which is kind of a big deal. All right. What else y'all got? 
Notice too about how the definition of like what is a faith, what is the follower of God, is different than the way the circumcision party is defining it. Remember, they have these boundary markers. Circumcision being the most notable one. They've also got the feast days. He says here it's faithfulness. If you you may not know this, or maybe you do, but even to this day, the state of Israel marks out whether you're a Jew based on circumcision. That's that's still true to this day. And they have a government office called the Conversion Authority. Okay, this is run by the Israeli government. And that the Conversion Authority is there to make sure that you are a real convert to Judaism. Okay, think about how kind of... That's pretty weird. Let me talk about how they used to be a theocracy. Well, actually, these things are still combined. And if you look at Jewish law, it says that coming to Israel is primarily reserved for Jews. Not to say there aren't exceptions, but basically, you need to be a Jew. Now, you and I as Gentiles can become Jews according to their law. In fact, I'll even show you. So this, this is the website for the Prime Minister's Office of Israel. And this is the Office of the Conversion Authority. And it's headed by a rabbi, which is what you would expect. Quotes passages, because they're going to make sure you're a real convert. And here, the conversion process includes, if you look at it, it says circumcision. Okay, acceptance of the mitzvah, that's Hebrew for the commands. So you've got to keep the laws. Circumcision, ritual immersion, so they do something kind of like baptism. And then you get a conversion certificate. You get a piece of paper, okay. And if you keep going, it's funny, they offer all sorts of services. And one of the services is, look at the last bullet point. Free assistance in investigating one's Judaism or proving it. Okay? This is run by the Israeli government. They will tell you, we'll, we'll, we'll investigate you and we can tell you if you're a real Jew or not. And the reason they have to do this is because their laws say that if you want to emigrate to Israel, you've got to be a Jew. So you have to define that. And there's a bunch of... It was in the, this was in the news recently, about last year I think it was, because they've been trying to change the laws to make it where it won't just be this one conservative rabbi and his organization that would control and dictate whether or not you can become a Jew, but possibly opening it up. Well, opening it up means there could be a lot more immigrants to Israel. They wouldn't have to go through him, so it became a big problem. And if you read those interviews they're talking about, they keep saying, what well, the big question here is who is a Jew? It's that national identity is key. I also find it a little bit funny to say you have to keep all the laws. I'm like, really? Because the temple doesn't exist anymore. That's kind of not really possible, but okay. Yes, sir? With all the records being destroyed, how do they really know? Right, the records were destroyed in 70 AD, so you can't even go back to the law. And I've even half wondered if Paul, because Jesus made a prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem. And I think that's key. It's not just a, here's a prophecy, it'll prove that who I am. This prophecy was actually rather important to the way that the, the gospel was developing, which was that the temple was here. The temple was Jesus. Okay, so the, that old temple was not the real thing and it was going to be purged. It was the end of those times. That's what Jesus says. And so the fact that they can't do the law I wonder if Paul actually had this in the back of his mind, thinking, listen, if you guys get too tidied up with this, this is all going down. And the Jerusalem church is going to go through some really tough situation. It's going to be scattered, and eventually it's not even going to exist. So we've got to, we've got to realize that we can't keep this connected. These need to disconnect. All right, any other questions or comments?
one of the things that we're, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more on Sunday, about the difference between the promise and the covenant. And if you look at this, the promise, the Abraham covenant, was based on faith. Who can have faith? Anybody can have faith. It's, it's not Jew and Gentile. It's not male or female, slave or free. Like these things, these are not dividing lines anymore. Works of the law, though, were meant for Jews, which is why there were works specifically to make it so that Jews and Gentiles were forced to split. He says the promise gives you a gift and a blessing. He says it's a blessing. And later he's going to start talking about a gift. He's going to start talk about it as an inheritance. You don't earn an inheritance. That's not how this works. You get an inheritance because you have a relationship. And what does the covenant give? Well, a curse. Now, you might say, well, a covenant could give you a blessing. Right, if you do them, which is the problem. The Jews didn't do them. Or the, that was broken. So all it gives you is a curse. And yeah, you, how do you get this? Well, you inherit a promise, but the covenant was you do the works of the law. That's Paul's point, right? You've got to do the works of the law. It's contingent on that. And the difference, we're going to talk about this later too, is the relationship difference, sons versus slaves. He's going to talk about sons and slaves and contrast them. Any questions or comments about that? Yes, sir. Yes, the aspect of adoption. Right. Yeah, good point. Adoption is key. We are going to talk about that. I think that's in, I think it's three classes from now. Might be four. I've got to look at the schedule. But yeah, adoption is absolutely key to this. Especially when you understand what adoption meant in that culture and how people would use it to raise the status of someone else. Anything else? So one of the things is in verse 7. So check this out. He says, So then understand that those who believe are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, proclaimed the gospel to Abraham ahead of time, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So that those who believe are blessed with Abraham the believer. Okay, so he says in here that... Those who believe are the sons of Abraham. Now, just think about how this would land on Jews, okay? So they marked out their identity as a national identity. And these, he's saying the sons are Gentiles? Like this? This would be hard, I think, for people to believe who had been thinking about it purely in a nationalistic sense. Also... And then he points out, well, hold on, right? This, isn't this, in hindsight, almost a little bit obvious? Because it says, all the nations will be blessed in you. Well, how would all the nations be blessed if it somehow was only limited to national Israel? Doesn't really make any sense, does it? Okay, so when you think about it in hindsight, it's like, well, yeah, I could guess. I could, you can see there's a bigger picture going on here. The other thing is that all the nations will be blessed in you. There's two passages that that looks similar to. It's Genesis 12 or Genesis 18. It actually looks more similar to Genesis 18 because Genesis 12 says all the families will be blessed and Genesis 18 says all the nations will be blessed. If you look at that, remember, I don't think Paul's just quoting the verse. I think he's quoting the context. If you go back and read Genesis 18, it's the story where God comes to Abraham and the whole issue of Sodom and Gomorrah is in the background. And so God goes, says to the people he's brought along, he says, should we tell... Abraham about what we're about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he, he kind of gives a, it seems like kind of a rhetorical question because he says, 
Well, he is going to be the father of many nations. So he has something to do with this because he's going to have a multi-ethnic family. And so they, they tell Abraham. You remember what Abraham does? And I think this tells you a little bit about the type of person Abraham was. Is he finds out about it. Now he, he over... He thinks there are more righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah than there are. He says, what? Are you going to do this? Would the one who is righteous do what is right? And he says, okay, well, if I can find 50, would you spare the city? And then he's like, okay, God says, fine, I'll spare, the, I'll spare the city. And then he gets him down. And he keeps getting him down lower and lower and lower. Finally gets it to 10. If you, if you would just permit me one more time. If, you could get it, if I could get 10, would you spare the city? I mean, this is the type of per- not the type of person who's just like, it's not the type of person like Jonah, right? This is somebody who does not want to see other people destroyed. This kind of makes sense that this is the kind of person you would want to be the father of many nations. It would be really hard to have a father of many nations if he was a racist, okay? This, he's trying to stand up for them. It turns out his problem is, is he, he's over-recognized how much righteousness there in there. So I don't know if he's thinking in the back of his head, well, I could get, you know, I could get Lot and his wife and I guess two daughters and kind of doing the math thinking, man, if I could get just four more people, I can, I can close the door on this, it turns out. He can't, okay? And the city gets destroyed. And I say it's different than Jonah, because you remember the story of Jonah? He is, it's a weird story when you think about him being a prophet. He's told to go preach to these other people outside of the ethnic identity of Israel. And he flees to Tarshish. And he even says, he's, he's like, he does this because he's like, hey, God, you're just, you're so merciful. I knew you would overlook their sin and not destroy them. And he literally wants these people destroyed. Right? And then it ends with this, it just kind of ends almost like a, I don't think it's a cliffhanger, it just ends sharply, where he gets this tree that comes up and he gives him shade. He's like, and then the, the tree gets killed and he gets upset. It's like, you wanted that tree because it served you to give you shade? There's all these people on it, animals, which you had no care about if they all got destroyed. Like, this is a prophet, but he's got a problem. And of course, it's really not about Jonah, it's about the overall picture of Israel falling into this this, you know, nationalistic trap, if you will. Now, I don't think you see that picture with, with Abraham. All right, what else you guys get? Yes, sir. Exactly. Yeah, they did. They, they made this point to, to Jesus. They, and John the Baptist cuts him off. He's like, don't, and don't you dare say to yourself, well, we're the seed of Abraham, because he's like, he could raise him up from stones if he wanted. Yeah, good point. Also notice here, it's not nationalistic identity. It's something about your spirit, not about your flesh, which I think is a key distinction. Leon. I'm with you. I, I, I can definitely say that I have fallen into a similar trap. It's like I've forgotten about the focus on Jesus 
and kind of started to define on all the things I did. And then, you know, I guess it shouldn't have been a big shock, but what followed from that is, I'm like, am I saved? I mean, when you sit there and you put in the list, like, I got to be like Jesus? I, I, if, if you're going to start thinking about this of doing enough things, I will never do as many things as Jesus. I mean, I, I have to love my enemy as myself. Have I done that for one split second? I mean, I have done loving things for my enemies, sure. But, I mean, I try not to have that many enemies. But to love my enemy as myself? I mean, it's hard to do that with your friends, much less your enemy. I, I mean, I, there's just a huge gap between me and Jesus. So I can't check that box. Right? If I'm going to do it by law, I, I'm convicted. Right. Yeah, we have to believe that he is going to do something to save us. It's right. I, I think this is the thing. For me, there was a big flip at one point where I realized I was, I, in hindsight, I don't know why I didn't see this, but I thought that the Bible was about me. And thinking the Bible is about you doing enough stuff is making it about you. And it sounds very pious, but it is backwards. It isn't about you. That makes you the main character. It is about God. And it's not about what you can do for God. It's primarily about what God has done for you. And now that has a response, quite as David pointed out, that faithfulness looks like something, but still, it is a response. All right, anything else? So, let's talk about blessings and cursing, especially the cursing part, because Paul, that's the part that Paul focuses on. So we talk about the... Oh, so this was why I think that Genesis 18 is more what Paul's quoting here. Paul uses the Septuagint Greek translation of the Old Testament. And if you look at it, the, line, the wording lines up very, very, very closely. Very similar. Less similar to Genesis 12. Okay. The curses of the Mosaic Covenant. So if you guys, what do you know about the curses? Somebody asked you, what are the curses of the Mosaic Covenant? What would you say? How would you define them? What kind of things do you remember about them or anything noteworthy about them? Yes, David. There were a lot more curses than there were blessings. <laughs> there were a lot more curses than there were blessings. That should have been a tip-off of how this is going to go. <laughs> yeah, good point. Yes. The cursings were generally a reversal of the blessings. Okay, yes. This is, if you pair them up, you'll find that the, the curses were a reversal of the blessings in many cases. It's very true. Yes, sir. I'll just note that in Deuteronomy chapter 28, the verse Good point. It says in there, if you faithfully obey these things, which is also a tip-off of what was going to go wrong here, right? It's like what Bob said, right in the beginning of class. The problem was not that they didn't do the law. The problem is they didn't want to do the law. It was actually deeper than that. Anything else? That's true. It is very focused on physical things. And in, in many cases, explicit detail. You know? Yes, Bob? Also, the loss of the promises. All of the promises, uh, 
Right, the loss of the promises. Yeah, exactly. One of the things, too, is if you, if you look at the way... So the way Paul's thinking about it, I think, I think he's saying... Because think about what the opponent's got to be saying. The opponent's got to be saying, go back to the law and you get all these blessings. Right? As it, what else would make any sense? And Paul's saying, okay, he, but that's only true if you do the law and suggest that they're not even doing the entire law. And once the temple comes down, nobody can do the entire law. And there's a, there's a video that... Roy had me watch. It was actually pretty good because at one point in there, the guy was flying to Israel and he's sitting on this plane with a bunch of rabbis. And he's like, hey guys, uh, maybe you could tell me, do you guys keep the law? And they're like, oh yeah, he's like, of course, we keep the law. Uh He's like, okay, what about this one? He didn't say which one it was. And the guy says, well, no, 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 we don't do that one. Our our rabbi has a reason, some explanation why we have to do that one. He's like, "Mm, okay. He goes to the next one. He's like, well, do you you keep this law? He's like, well, no, 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 that, that, that requires a temple, and the temple's gone, so we can't really do the law. Well, see, they, they said they keep the law, and then they start going through. It's like, well, no, no, not really. I mean, nobody really keeps the law. That's the problem. You're not going to get the blessings. You're only going to get the curse. Go back and read the law, you who want to go back to the law. It has this long list, a longer list of curses than blessings. How did you think this was going to go? And, uh, you know, one thing, let me, okay, a couple things too. So there's the point about how there's more curses than there were blessings. If you go back and you read this closely, here's what what Moses says. He tells you in advance of how the story is going to go that, first of all, he says, I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. See the association? Life with blessing, death with curse. So it's, as Chris pointed out, it's very physical, but I think there's a bigger story there. Not only that, he actually says, let me see where it is. In Deuteronomy 30, he says, And when these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse. So he tells you, choose the blessing, do what is right. But Moses knows how the story is going to end, and it's not going to end with Israel keeping this covenant. He says, you're going to actually, you're going to get a blessing. And you're going to get the curse because Israel is not going to keep keep Israel's not going to keep her word. Another thing that is noteworthy is that if you compare and contrast how God responds to Israel and the sins that Israel does, both before the law and after the law, you're going to see a difference. For example, they violate the Sabbath, Exodus 16. Before Sinai, before the law, goes unpunished. From Sinai, after that, Numbers 15, it's punished. They long for the delicacies of Egypt, unpunished and before the law, punished after the law. They claim that it would be better to die in Egypt, dwell there's deaths, and then after, or there's death after the law, but not before the law. Grumbling against Moses, against Moses, same thing, right? There's a, there's a switch in each case. Battle with the Amalekites, well, their battles were contingent on them performing. Well... When they didn't do this, this is what happened. They get defeated. But before that, they were victorious. Moses complaining. At first, he doesn't complain until just prior to the giving of the law. But afterwards, he says, he asked God just to kill him. But you can imagine Moses being like, oh, we got this covenant. It's already going bad. Now what do you do? We did this covenant, and it's got these blessings and curses. Remember, like Abraham saying that, oh, I got to keep my side of this covenant. Because if I don't, this is in big trouble. And somebody told me, actually it was Adam Sater, Josh's brother. He's like, if God said he would punish when certain things happen and he did not punish, 
you question whether God's going to keep his word on the positive things too, right? It's kind of like when you're a parent and you say, if you do this and then the kid does it, and you said there's going to be punishment, you have to do it. Otherwise, you, it's obvious that you don't plan to keep your word. In this case, that's what God was doing. Another thing, so some of you may have heard about this, this archaeological finding that came real recent. It's actually it's quite relevant to this class. And what they found was this little tiny lead tablet. And it's called a curse tablet. Very charming. And it has curses on it. What the, it has been called by a scholar, he said, it is likely to be the biggest archaeological finding in our lifetime that's related to Christianity or related to the Bible. And the reason is, is because the main argument the skeptics make against Moses writing the Pentateuch is that he doesn't use the divine names El and Yahweh together. They said that's a later thing, and so if you see them together, that just means that clearly the Pentateuch was made later. This would refute that, because both of them appear on a single archaeological finding in which the date is much earlier. The stippling said, stripling said that on a scale of 1 to 10, this is a 10. He said, this finding doesn't get any bigger than this. So let me quickly go through this. Here's what it says. Cursed, 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 cursed by God, Yahweh. You will die cursed. Cursed, you will surely die. Cursed by Yahweh. Cursed, cursed, cursed. But this is a self-imprecation. This is them saying, if we don't keep the law, we're going to be cursed. So when you say curse to a Jew who knew the law, they knew exactly what they meant. And they knew if they didn't keep this, this is what's going to happen to us. And there's plenty of references back to in the Old Testament. All right. I think that was the second bell, right? Cool. Thanks, y'all.